afternoon. Welcome to the Big Tent on Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler, here with my co-host Charlie Hunt, who has now seen Top Gun. That's right. It, uh, it lived up to my every expectation and honestly surpassed it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll, we'll keep, continue to keep you updated as we update Charlie on some of these key American classics. That's right. All right, well, we're very excited today to have a special guest with us, Dr. Michael Touchton at the University of Miami, what used to work at Boise State University, and so it's nice to have him back, back around for a little bit. And so, uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you both for having me, and really nice to see you uh, virtually in this case. I wish I could be in the studio, but I'll have to wait, well, well, hopefully less than a year, maybe the next trip back to town. Yeah, that'd be great. Fingers crossed. So, uh, Mike, just to give a little bit of an update for everyone, or I guess to give everyone an introduction to you, uh, what's, what's kind of your general research interest? Well, of course, I'm a political science professor, and I study development and underdevelopment around the world. I focus particularly on Latin America and the relationship between governance processes, really how policy gets made and implemented, and different outcomes surrounding human and economic development. Most recently, in the last three or four years, I've been working a lot on public health outcomes. Uh, That includes lots of different population health indicators like infant mortality or maternal mortality. And in this case, I've shifted to work on the pandemic and tracking policy responses across Latin American countries and then using them to try to get a better understanding of which places are doing better on cases, on deaths, on hospitalizations, and why they're doing better. Which is why we're so excited to have you join us today. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, in the U.S., the COVID-19 kind of cases and responses at state and local levels as well. But I think the global experience is so important when looking at this pandemic, right? And so, you, as you alluded to, you've been working on this project, uh, like this Latin American COVID-19 policy tracker. And so, what is this project? Kind of what are what are you all doing within this organization? The idea behind this consortium of researchers across the Americas is to identify what governments are doing around the region, and not just at the national level, at the state level and at the local level where we can, to see what policies they're putting in place to combat the pandemic. In many cases, much like in the U.S., national governments have done very little, and so the responsibility to act falls on states' and local government shoulders. That leads to a wide variety of responses and a wide variety of outcomes. Just like in the United States, where we see 50 different pandemics in some respects, and maybe more depending on how you look at the cities, In Brazil, you see 27 different ones. In Mexico, you see 32 different ones. In some other countries, there's more of a consistent response, like in Costa Rica or Uruguay, where the national government has done more overall and the local governments are less powerful. But of course, those are smaller countries with smaller populations. Um, So the idea behind this is then to collect these policy responses and use them to identify patterns. And with those patterns, we hope to help governments act more forcefully and more appropriately in real time to prevent the pandemic from spreading even more in their respective jurisdictions. We also use these data to alert the press. Hopefully, public pressure can lead to more accountability 
as the press so far, mostly in Mexico and Brazil, have latched onto some of our rankings of the different states and some of our recommendations. And so we see that as a positive sign, but we want to get the message out as quickly as we can, as forcefully as we can, that there are simple things governments can do to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And in many cases, they're not doing them. Mike, what are, based on sort of some of the, well, I guess I was going to say early data, but this has been going on for quite a while now, uh, based on some of the data you have collected and some of the recommendations you have made, what do you all see as some of the interventions that have had the most success in a couple of different countries or states within these countries? Sure. But we've collected daily data for all of these different governments at different levels. So now we have a f- um, 120 or so days with changes in policies or policy implementation from the first cases in the country, and then outcomes surrounding cases and deaths, as well as a check on whether the policies have an impact on what people do. Compliance matters a lot for for these considerations, just like it does in the U.S. We have population mobility data from Google where we can tell if people are moving around or not. So when there's a stay-at-home order, do people stay home? So the first response to your question is uh, the stay-at-home order is the most important single item that or single policy measure that states, countries, cities can implement to buy themselves time. It's not going to stop the spread of the disease. We don't have a long enough stay-at-home order anywhere where you would eliminate all vestiges of the virus. But what it does do is it gives countries, states, cities, any government time to get their contact tracing and testing regimes in order. Basically, it's possible to reopen an economy safely if people wear masks, if there's enough testing to identify where the virus remains, and enough contact tracing to isolate the people who've been exposed. The countries that have done well, the states that have done a little better, have used that precious time that they bought with a stay-at-home order, if they issued one, to then implement a robust regime of testing and tracing. In Brazil and Mexico, they shut down early if they shut down at all. You did not see lockdowns at the state level in most states in Brazil. Only in some cities did you see it, and people kept moving around at a very high level. And as they kept moving around, they kept spreading the disease. Then, and this this is an unfortunate reality, but the economic conditions in most of Latin America are such that a lockdown is really unsustainable. It's not sustainable in the U.S. either, but people are in an even more precarious economic position in most countries. And so there was huge political pressure to reopen in order to salvage what could be salvaged of businesses and the economy overall. That is necessary, but if you reopen without masks, testing, and tracing, you're going to see see an explosion of cases. So the Brazilian situation, which is uh, horrific right now, is due to a late closure and an early opening with very few measures in place to prevent the spread of the disease in the meantime. One thing we've continued to see issues with in the U.S. is having enough, enough tests to actually do testing and keep up with testing, as well as kind of getting populations to fully adopt and wear the mask. How, are these similar issues that you've seen in some Latin American countries? They are. They're very similar. And it's discouraging in the sense of compliance being so low in some places, partially due to misinformation 
partially due to mistrust of the government, where governments have performed poorly, it makes sense that the population wouldn't believe them now. And as a result, health messaging doesn't work that well. There's also a large partisan polarization component that we see in uh, Brazil most clearly that mimics that of the United States. Uh, in Mexico, a little bit less, but around the world, hyperpolarization and partisanship colors people's interpretation of government messages and covers their res- or colors their responses as well as it colors the messages the government sends. And so you put all that together, coupled with multiple layers of governments, and you have great difficulty in most larger countries in Latin America uh, in the public's interpretation of what's happening and what they should do. And this causes chaos, and it leads to broader spread of the disease. Yeah, there's no doubt that that's what we have uh, seen in many areas of of the U.S. for sure. So it's interesting to see that there are some commonalities there. Uh, We're going to take a short break, but uh, we're just getting started here. So we'll be right back with Mike Touchton right after this. Welcome back to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise. We're back with uh, our very special guest today, Dr. Mike Touchton, talking about COVID-19, but particularly in the international context and even more particularly in Latin America. You mentioned at the end of the last segment that there's this element of partisan polarization. And, uh, you know, when when our listeners think of partisan polarization, they probably think of Democrats and Republicans, you know, conservatives and liberals in the U.S. You know, can you talk a little bit more about how that dynamic is overlaying onto sort of the response to the virus, whether that's sort of government response or how citizens are interpreting information coming out of, uh, of the government, whether that's in Brazil or, or some of these other Latin American countries? Absolutely. In both Brazil and Mexico, the federal response to the pandemic has been fairly similar to that of the United States, eerily similar in the sense that something that Trump said in February or March would end up echoed by Mexico's president or Brazil's president just a few days later. They were taking pages from the same playbook, and they operate in very similar ways. They don't support evidence-based policy in many respects. Uh, To give you an example, Mexico's president said his six-leaf clover pin would protect him and anyone else who had one from the virus. Bolsonaro simply said the virus is fake. Then when it was abundantly apparent that it was real, he said it's like a little flu. It's nothing to be scared of. If you're not a weakling, you should be fine. And then later, when confronted with a rising number of deaths, he said, well, so what? you got to die anyway. Might as well be from coronavirus. Might as well be now. Oh, my. Yes. Um, absolutely appalling. And as he has recently contracted the disease, he has continued making appalling statements surrounding its veracity as a disease and who will get it and why and what you should do to counteract it. Um, Hydroxychloroquine is his short answer. So this doesn't sound that far off uh, from some of what we've seen in the US, maybe worse. But the responses to the virus at the national level being absent, but with clear messaging that the virus is fake or that there shouldn't be a response, means that the governors of Brazil and Mexico states, most prominently Brazil states, have followed in partisan lockstep with the president. So if they're part of his party, they've done very, very little. If they're in the opposition, they've had serious measures implemented earlier 
and better results too. The cities are the same thing. And we can take this down to the individual level. There are people who identify with Bolsonaro's party in Brazil or the president of Mexico is named Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, people um, abbreviated to AMLO. People who identify with his party have taken this less seriously. This is not exactly a left-right dimension polarization either, which is interesting because AMLO in Mexico is on the political left. Bolsonaro is on the far political right. It's a matter of polarization and hyper-partisanship, whether it's left or right. It's fascinating to see these kind of parallels about the role of partisanship and polarization in individuals' reactions as well as policy responses to COVID-19. In recent weeks, we're seeing growing cases across the U.S. in different states, different urban areas. Are we also seeing rises in cases and hospitalizations, all those types of things in some of these Latin American countries? Yes. And one place you can go to find information on this is the website that my team and I have created to distribute this information. And it's observecovid.miami.edu, hosted at the University of Miami. It's observe, which is short for observatorio in Spanish and Portuguese. So it's O-B-S-E-R-V, no E, covid.miami.edu. Cases are exploding through Latin America. In general, as, as I mentioned in the first segment, uh, countries that did lockdown did not use the time of the lockdown to get their house in order with regard to testing and tracing. Mask wearing is a different story, but population density is really, really high in many Latin American countries. Urbanization levels are very high. So most people live in cities. So in Brazil, it's 85% live in larger cities. That's one of the higher rates around. There are also multi-generational families living in the same house, same apartment. That's very, very common too. So you take high population density, multi-generational families, and a demographic shift in the middle-income countries in the region, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Costa Rica, Colombia. Longevity is increasing. So people are living longer, and the disease burden has shifted from acute diseases that are fatal in the short term to long-term chronic conditions, much like the United States, things like hypertension, heart disease, diabetes. All of these are comorbidities for COVID-19. And you have these pre-existing conditions that a lot of people suffer from and an aging population living in densely populated cities in multi-generational families. That's just a recipe for disaster. And without masks, testing, and tracing, once the virus gets into these tightly knit, very dense communities, it's almost impossible to stop it. And then the death rates look more like Italy's, unfortunately, than like the United States, where conditions were somewhat similar. Mike, do you feel like there are differences, you know, between either between states within these countries or between the countries themselves, you know, other than what we've talked about, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, you mentioned economic conditions before, um, you know, other structures or institutions that may explain, you know, not necessarily just the incidence of the virus, but how likely governments are to respond to it. I know in Latin America, you have a wide, wide variety of government structures and government types. To what extent do you think that plays a role here? 
to a very large extent, I think. This plays a very important role in terms of the different institutions in place across the different countries and the different regimes, too. Uh, The more authoritarian regimes have done the least. Theoretically, they might have the most power to shut down, but they also have consistently denied the existence of the virus. And where they have shut down, they've used it to go after their political enemies and strengthen their control over both the economy and the political institutions in the country. You've seen other countries, um, Nicaragua being the most prominent, where they didn't shut down at all. They've taken almost no measures against the virus because they decided it wasn't worth the economic cost. And they're going to absorb tens of thousands of deaths that are unnecessary. But they simply said, we're too poor to take on any shutdowns. We're not going to be able to do testing or tracing anyway because we don't have the capacity. So unfortunately, we'll go for herd immunity as quickly as possible. That's a lesser known disaster. Um, Finally, just one more point. The current Mexican president dismantled the previous health system as soon as he took office in 2018. The replacement that he proposed is not up and running at any functional level yet. And so the timing could not have been worse. The idea of a new universal health system is a reasonable idea, but with nothing in place, you have just an absence of response from the health system, even if the national government thought it would be a good idea to implement some of these measures. They couldn't because they got caught with their pants down effectively in between these two health systems. So many challenges and and different factors to think about beyond what we're considering in the United States. Well, we'll be back in a minute with some more discussions with Dr. Touchton. Welcome back to The Big Tent. We're here with our special guest, Dr. Mike Touchton at the University of Miami, who's been researching and tracking COVID-19 in Latin America. And so far in this show, you know, we've drawn some really interesting parallels to things happening in the United States. And so, Mike, we thought we'd dig into that a little bit more. And so what else do you think your research into, you know, the responses in Latin America has helped you perhaps or provided insights into the United States? Well, certainly in the sense that the states that closed late and opened early and are now seeing an explosion of cases is exactly what we'd expect from Brazil's experience, from Mexico's experience, really from every country in the region's experience, even those that shut down early uh, when they reopened without policy measures in place to help out, they've, they've seen an explosion of cases too. We've got hotspots that are different hotspots from the earlier shutdown. So that's a bit of a difference in the United States where New York still has declining cases and Miami, where I live, has an astronomical increase in cases and a surge that's overwhelming hospitals. That's the other component here that it's, that it's important to remember that keeping the hospitals free is critical to providing good enough care such that the fatality rate stays low. In places with a more robust health system, either at the national, state, or even local level, have fared a lot better during these surges as the reopening continues. And I think we're likely to see that in the U.S. too, where an overwhelmed system in Houston, I think Miami's at ICU capacity right now too. I saw something from public health directors for the state of Idaho that they were concerned that Boise could be overwhelmed fairly soon as well. 
And so keeping the ER clear, keeping the ICUs clear, and not exposing elderly people or other vulnerable populations to the virus is something that's proven very difficult throughout the region. But that's another way to buy precious time to get better treatments and to get more space to operate so that you don't have overwhelmed health systems when people invariably need to go into the hospital. Mike, you mentioned um, the sort of the different kinds of hotspots that different types of nations might have. You know, I, I think you know that here, a lot of the hotspots, particularly these sort of super spreading areas, have tended to be, you know, nursing homes and also jails and prisons. I wonder if you have any sort of idea about whether that's the case in some of these Latin American countries or whether it's sort of more concentrated in poorer areas or areas with sort of multi-generational households. You know, we know that, you know, extended indoor time in crowded indoor areas is a big spreading component of this virus. Do you see that sort of thing with, you know, nursing homes or prisons or is it something else in, in some of these other countries? Most of the countries in Latin America don't have private nursing homes. Uh, In general, the elderly would live with their children in some capacity. And so you don't see that as much. Prisons are a nightmare, but you also don't see most countries in Latin America doing a lot of testing in prisons. The testing regime in most countries lags far behind the United States, which in turn lags far behind that of many uh, European countries or East Asian countries. And so in that sense, there's a huge undercount in the region, and we, we really don't know what the numbers are. Uh, I did a webinar a, a week ago with a Brazilian epidemiologist who used to be part of their CDC, and his brief sampling undercount was about 10 times the number of cases. We don't know on deaths, but uh, the undercount is large in the U.S., but probably not 10 times the reported cases. Well, we know the prison population is exposed at a really high rate in the United States. I guarantee it's the same, if not much worse, elsewhere in the Americas. But again, we're not testing or the countries involved aren't testing. So we, we don't really know. So you've mentioned, you know, the undercounting and the issues with testing. So in light of that, how are you all trying to account for that in your data collection or analysis? For now, we're focusing on what we can see, which is the public policy measures. And that includes masks during the reopening or during closures, for that matter. And population mobility, which we can also see because Google tracks apps that a wide variety of people have on their phones. And cell phone penetration now in Latin America, including even smartphone, is quite high. And so we can see if people are moving around or not. At a, at a pretty thorough level. We don't know what the real case numbers are and deaths are a little easier because you have physical evidence of them, but that's a big undercounted area as well. And some of the estimates I've seen of the overages from year on year, like one way to do that is to look at an average year and see how many deaths you have for this time of year for one area and then compare it to how many you're recording this year. That doesn't solve your problem entirely because many people who might otherwise go to the hospital for some problem are scared to do so, even though they don't have coronavirus, they don't want to catch coronavirus. And so they stay home and something gets worse and then it becomes fatal. So it's not an entirely accurate measure, 
but we're seeing at least three or four times the number of normal deaths in almost every country in the region. And it's probably higher than that. So these these numbers, these projections of you know potentially 200,000 deaths in Brazil by the end of October, if nothing changes, it could go much higher. I mean, the actual number of deaths could very easily be a million. And keep in mind, Brazil has a little over 100 million fewer people than the United States. So the U.S. projections are flirting with about 200,000 deaths by that time, too. That's probably an undercount, but not an undercount of five or six times. So, Mike, I mean, you and your team have obviously put a ton of effort into this data collection process and, and everything going on with the project to date. Hopefully, we won't need your project for much longer, but uh, I have a sneaking suspicion we'll continue to. Can you talk a little bit about ways you might want to sort of uh, expand it in the future? Do you have, you know, features or pieces of data that you would like to have but can't quite get? You know, what, what do you see as sort of the next three to six months of, of the, the COVID observatory? We have different teams coding Bolivia, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, uh, and we'd like to expand beyond that. We'd like to do that at the subnational level, because even though some of these countries have had strong federal responses, as they reopen, variation emerges in the states and local governments. The next step, step that we'd like to take, if possible, too, is to collect local municipal level data. As I mentioned, in urbanized countries, the municipal government plays a serious role because most people live in big cities. And so you have three layers of government with potential to act on, on the um, pandemic response, just like in the United States. And so we'd like to capture that information as best we can and use it to build better models of the health outcomes in the future. And we can get the word out now about who's doing what and why they should do more in most cases. But in the long run, we want to explain what happens from a public health perspective. And we'll be able to do that as we get more and better data on cases and deaths. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. We really appreciate it. I know this wasn't necessarily probably what you had planned for your summer research, but it's so amazing that you've shifted your time to really focus on something of such importance to us all um, in our COVID-19 responses. Well, thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciated being on the air with you, and I look forward to the next time, maybe in person. Hopefully. That'll do it for today on The Big Tent. Uh, We'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining us.